Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone-Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Annie Highwater. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies in Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. In this episode, Annie Highwater interviews Katie Donovan. Katie is a professionally trained and certified family recovery coach, an interventionist, and an executive life coach. She left a 20-year career in the corporate world to embrace a vocation in the world of recovery after her life was turned upside down with her daughter's seven-year active addiction. In this conversation, Katie invites us to consider how families often follow in their loved one's footsteps. Katie and her daughter's respective processes unfolded in parallel and fed into each other's recovery as well. The denial, the obsessive behaviors, they shared it all. They both took the reins of healing, as Katie puts it, both relapsed to and grew from it all. Now they are both using this experience to help others. Enjoy. I have read the work of a mother's addiction journey for a while now, and I believe we speak the same language. Author Katie Donovan has spent over the last 20 years in the marketing, events, and communications industry. And after experiencing the addiction journey with her daughter, Brittany, Katie left the marketing career in order to focus on family recovery, which is amazing to me because I was in corporate insurance and left my field to kind of lose my mind for a while, regroup, recover, and then develop a recovery career that put me back in insurance. So I'm kind of doing recovery, writing, podcasting, insurance work, all bottlenecking into one. And I think that's kind of where the journey leads you. Katie has now dedicated her life to those that are affected by substance use disorder, by coaching families through the chaos of their loved one's addiction. And I think there's no greater work in this world to me other than rocking grieving children than helping a family mend and become whole and sane again. She is a sought out expert for stigma reduction. She gives training to law enforcement, first responders, hospitals, and workplace wellness. Katie and her daughter, Brittany, also co-founded a blog where they dig deep about their journey. It's at amothersaddictionjourney.com. It has reached over a million views and has been seen in 146 countries, and I hope that continues to increase and expand within 30 days of its inception. It's been syndicated in over 30 publications, including USA Today and Babbel by Disney. Thank you for coming on and welcome. Thank you. This is so fantastic, Annie. And like you said, uh, I feel like we are sisters that have never met. Um, I've been following your work as well. And I'm very, 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 very honored to um, be a guest today. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to get into it. So just for um, if you want to give a brief what we call a lead in recovery, which is in some places call them a testimony or your story. For those who aren't aware, if you could just kind of take it away and open up and tell us what's your story. Sure. Uh, and, and I'll make it I'll make it pretty brief, but um, you know, we are that normal, well, what family is normal, right? But kind of typical family with the uh, my husband and two kids and our dog, right? 
And I was the PTA mom and the brownie leader. And I taught my daughter's uh, catechism class and she made her first communion. And and we thought we were doing things right uh, for our children and teaching our kids about uh, drugs and the dangers of alcohol. And when my daughter's addiction journey began was in her uh, uh, senior year of high school. And it was, she had gotten into a single car accident. And I remember getting the phone call and rushing to the emergency room and having that panic in your heart because they don't tell you if everything is okay, right? And so you're, you're panicking and you're rushing, your heart is beating a mile a minute. And when I arrived, uh, they had told me that she had a very high amount of Xanax in her system. And I was like, what? That doesn't even make sense. We're, you know, so fast forward, um, I had no idea about the dangers of prescription narcotics and therefore did not teach my children about the dangers of them as well. And this was back in 2008 when um, she kind of began into this and I think the education is much more out there now than it was then. You know, if it was, I certainly didn't pay attention to it because I think it's one of those things. If you're not affected by it, right, you don't don't pay attention. But fast forward within within a year of that, she was uh, addicted to heroin, crack and Xanax. And it has been a tumultuous journey. Uh, since then, for the the past eleven years, uh, just a really roller coaster ride of up and down, and and um, having two years of clean time, and and then and then slipping, and right, and so I think in the beginning, you don't think that it's an addiction. You think that maybe is this a phase, right? Is this um, experimentation? Is she depressed? Is she right? You think of all of these things, and so you're jumping uh, to to save them at every moment. And as the journey continued, I started becoming addicted to her. Yes, and right, and I was just in a complete fog of everything else that was going on around me. And my, uh, so my daughter, Brittany, she's the one that struggled. My youngest daughter, Brooke, um, she, you know, very, very involved in sports and, uh, you know, dance and, and that type of thing. And I was also her Girl Scout leader, but I, I was there, but I don't think I was really always fully present mentally. And also with my husband, I uh, just, her was, my daughter Brittany was on my mind 24 seven. And if you think about, and I go back to that car accident, that feeling of panic moving forward for really the past, until I began my own recovery journey, that was the feeling that I had every minute of every day. Right. And it was, I remember a moment when I needed to begin my own healing. And I, my husband had called me one day 
And he said, um, hey, hey, babe, do you, can you take the garbage out? I forgot to take it when I walked out the door this morning. And obviously, normally, not that big of a deal, right? <laughs> Apparently, it was that day for me because I lost it. I mean, I just was screaming and crying. And I just remember saying, I can't take this anymore. Yeah. I can't take this anymore. If one more person asks me to do one more thing, I'm going to lose my business, right? <laughs> and That's a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah, because... <laughs> When you're trying to, right, you're juggling your corporate career, you're juggling the everyday things of just life, right, of maintaining your house. And and, and I don't know about you, but Annie, but I think in general as, as women, we are kind of the, the caretakers of things in the home, right, of the doctor's appointments and the grocery shopping and the laundry. And it's just everyday stuff, right? But when you throw addiction into that, uh, it, it, in itself is disastrous. And I just remember jumping in my car and it was pouring down rain that day. And I just drove and I drove and I drove and I drove. And I just remember crying so hard, but like that, that where you can't breathe type. Yeah. And it's pouring down rain and the windshield wipers are going like crazy. And, and all I want, all I thought about was driving my car into a tree. Yep. And, but the crazy thing was I didn't want, I didn't want to die. In fact, I, I remember my mind being strategic about it because I didn't want to hurt anyone else. I thought, okay, there's the telephone pole or there's a tree, but there's a car coming the other way. I certainly don't want to hurt them. These are crazy thoughts, right? And, but all I wanted to do was make my my pain go away. I wanted my family's pain to go away. That's all I wanted. And my phone kept blowing up. My husband kept calling and calling and calling. And I just kept saying, leave me alone. Leave me. And I kept, and I started hitting decline. And then, and then my mom started calling and I'm like, okay, my mom doesn't make phone calls. She texts. Thank God for that. Right. I taught her how to do that. But <laughs> she's, she's calling and I'm like, oh my God, did he tell my mother seriously? And then my brother's calling and it's just, yeah. it was one thing after another. But by the grace of God, my husband did find me that day. And he said to me, Katie, if anything ever happened to you, I don't think Brittany could survive. And I knew what he meant. He didn't mean emotionally. He meant in life. Because I was literally doing everything for her. Oh, yeah. Yep. Right? So if she did get a job and she lived at home, right? And I'm go, there's been times where she hasn't lived at home. She's been in treatment, living sober, living all work, five different states. But I would, whether she was home or not, I would call her or set my own alarm to make sure she was up for work on time. Because <laughs> my fear, right? My fear was that if she didn't go to work, she's going to lose her job. Then she's going to relapse. Then she's going to die. Yep. There was no in between. Right. That is the path that your mind goes. Yes. And right. And I, so I making the doctor's appointments and driving her everywhere and, and believing everything, right. It's $20 here and $20 there. And, and it was just 
so overwhelming. And he begged me to get help. And he said, um, we need you. We need you. Yeah. And that's when I realized I needed to take a step back. And so I started um, looking up support groups. I think I Googled it. In fact, actually, it was back then. It was probably I Yahooed it, right? <laughs> but I found one and, uh, and I drove to the church. It was in a church basement. And I drove there, the first one, and I pulled into the parking lot and I sat in my car for the entire hour. So many people do that. That's so normal. Like, and just, or just, even if it's not your first one, some people I know have pulled in and cried just because it was a terrible week. And that's, that's so normal. (laughs) I think getting out of the car and walking in meant this was real. And I also felt like I was a failure. Why couldn't I handle this? Was I not strong enough? Was I a failure as a mother? Was I not able to get her better, right? And then once I really started connecting with others and learning, you know, and being educated about this disease is when I realized the only thing that I can control is myself and how I react to things. But in the meantime, I also... And maybe this happened for you, Annie, too. We're kind of given um, sometimes poor guidance and (laughs) a lot of cliches along the way that didn't make sense to me, such as um, tough love. Yes. And I think there's variations of how people may interpret that. I believe that's interpretation centered as well. And I also think sometimes the advice comes from people who you might happen to be close to, but they're not, they're not on the playing field. I had advice like that come from someone that had a three-year-old tucked into bed every night. And I would think this is my 18-year-old child, my only child. I wasn't even ready for empty nest yet, let alone terror that comes with a situation that makes you feel as if your kid's been abducted and your mind goes through all the same kinds of scenarios. So I get it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And then, and then, you know, don't, don't talk to me till you get a year clean. Oh Um, yeah, no. And, 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 and then other things, you know, stop killing your kids and none of this felt natural to me. I didn't resonate with it. And, and, and I did attempt to do things that others had told me to do, even though it didn't feel natural. And I, I, I'm not saying that I regret that because I think I learned with it, but also I needed to do, I think what felt best for me. And that was, coming to a place of love and acceptance wherever she was at. Right. And that really, really helped. And in the meantime, I think the dynamic of the family is so affected and it's a big part that I feel. And I think you feel too, Annie, that's missing in recovery when I say recovery because they say this is a family disease yet it's really not treated as such right that us as families we need healing too and we should be a part of that complete recovery process absolutely marriages are affected siblings are affected grandparents right all of us but if if say 
you know, your loved one goes to treatment and then they're discharged back to a very sick family. Right. What are the what are odds? The odds? <laughs> right. Yep. right. And it's it's imperative that we are involved in the recovery process. And I'm not saying we need to know if they ate their six carrots that day. That's <laughs> right. That's their recovery. Yeah. It's our about taking the focus off of our loved one and back onto ourselves again. Of you know. There were so many times where we didn't even want to go on a weekend getaway because yep. what if something happened? So we, our lives stopped. And a part of the coaching and the family recovery is getting your own life back. Right. And learning how to love in a way that is healthy versus, versus harmful. And I think families relapse too. I just did a few weeks ago, by the way. Oh, I did too. (laughs) (laughs) I had a quicker comeback and handled it a lot different than, you know, I was a lot more logical and quicker to reshuffle onto my feet, but it does happen. (laughs) It does. does. So I'll give you an example. My daughter, uh, she is uh, living in a sober home and doing very, very well. I'm so, so proud of her right now. Uh, but we had an, an agreement that um, we would financially help her till she right got on her feet and got a job, et cetera, et cetera. So she got a job uh, and it actually was her second job because she had quit the first one after a couple of days. But anyway, she, she got a job. She worked there for a couple of weeks. And then she, it was just about the time where she was going to get her paycheck and start to become independent financially herself. And she called me and she said, she's, she's crying. She said, mom, I quit. I can't take it there anymore. These people, this and that, and the coworkers and the hours. And, and I went off. <laughs> what, what do you mean you quit? You don't, you can't afford to quit, right? You're, right. You, you have these bills and you have this. And, and all I kept thinking was now it's going to fall back on me financially again. Right. Yeah. And so I did, I lost and I'm like screaming or anything, but I just what what you can't quit a job until you have another job. That's just not how the world works. She got really upset with me and she ended up hanging up later on as I'm processing the conversation and really thinking about this, I realized my own part in this, that she actually didn't ask me for anything. Yeah. She never did. I assumed that's where it was going to go. And I I jumped, right? What she really needed was just to vent. Right. Yep. For me to be her mom and listen. And so I owned up to that and I called her and I apologized. And I said, sometimes it's hard for me too. I don't do everything right and perfect. But if we just continue this open conversation where we tell their stands, then we just work through it from here. You are listening to Coming Up for Air, sponsored in part by alliesinrecovery.net. Here is a testimonial from an Allies member. This is Allies in Recovery member GP Traveler. 
In the first days of the modules, my husband and I learned how to position ourselves and how to have conversations with her. No more dramatic pleas with reminders of how bad things had become. Let's return to the conversation you're listening to on Coming Up for Air, produced in partnership with alliesinrecovery.net. That's the best thing is that, like, especially between my son and I, I think once you go through that and you survive it and you get to a place of some momentum, there's not anything that's been unsaid. I mean, on all sides, there's been hateful things, ignorant things, accusing things, things that you lash out in fear, whatever. I mean, I've said some of the worst things to my son that I wouldn't say to somebody murdering me because I was in such terror and, you know, he as well, but it's, and we've had to make amends for all of that. And I, it's, you know, when you come to that place and you're the affected family member or the entourage, so to speak, and you come to the place where you realize this person's behavior might be easy to kind of point out the most, it's screaming the most, it looks the most wrong, but I've got a side of the street to clean up too. And you start to level that out and make amends for your side of it. Because I would always think if I said this, it's because he caused me to. If I was harsh with him, it's because the situation called for it. I couldn't help it. I couldn't control it. But that's not true. And once you start getting momentum in that area and start making amends, on this side of all of that, we there's nothing left unsaid. <laughs> you know, our conversations are up to date. There's no, it, we have transparency. We're not, you know, in mesh. He's not a mama's boy. I'm not in his drama or his business or, you know, directing his relationships or whatever. But we're so healthy that if something does spring up between us, we're pretty good about taking some time apart, doing our, whatever our process is, and then hashing it out, moving on. There's no like toxic needs left because it's all been said. Yes. Good, bad, and ugly. It's all, you know, the good stuff too, because you come to that life and death reality when you are living in fear of their death, where you make sure they know how much you love them. Mm -hmm. So it's all been said. Mm -hmm. We're caught up. (laughs) A place of, of, of absolute gratitude. Right. And things in all aspects of my life now, things that may have really upset me or bothered me. And I don't even mean, you know, about addiction, just in general, seem like a piece of cake. Like, oh, yes, we got this. That's no it renovates deal. everything in your life. And per- I mean, I don't I was going to ask you the question about um, secondary issues. And I know, you know, <laughs> I I help facilitate a meeting, a recovery meeting, and I try to stay very active. And it's interesting to me. I also work in recovery in the um, healthcare industry. So sometimes somebody will come in and they have an addicted husband or daughter, but they also have lost their job, lost their home. Their dog got killed in front of them in a car. You know, it's just they've had all these things, these tornadoes hit at once. And they always send them to me because that was my life for a while. And I tend to know how to speak that language and get in the eye of the storm. Not that I have solutions, but I can personally, and I found this in a lot of people, that when the situation came in and explodes into and through your life, all of these secondary issues, you just don't have time to work out stupid stuff. But also, a lot of secondary stuff, I mean, family issues, it comes for everything. It exposes everything. It's like you always hear when there's a crisis, it shows what everyone's made of. It, people that I thought were so normal and functional, I couldn't rely on anymore or, you know, were just gone or toxic. I had kind kindness and help from people I would have never expected it from. Good, bad, whatever, healthy, unhealthy. It, it explodes the layers of everything that needs cleaned up. 
I didn't know if that was your experience. I mean, friendships had to be either removed or renovated or put on a shelf and maybe they'll circle back around. Maybe they won't. There's so many layers to it. Kind of like when a storm comes through a town and everything gets exposed, the strength, strength of every foundation is revealed and then everything has to be rebuilt. It's very true. It's very true. I think the biggest thing uh, in, for me personally was my marriage. Uh, because my husband and I, we were at odds about what to do. And I thought he was way too hard on her. He thought I was enabling too much. And every single conversation revolved around Brittany. And we couldn't even go out to dinner without her being the topic of conversation. And also, I'm very admittedly uh, in re- also in recovery of being oh, so codependent. It's <laughs> Me <funny>. too. <laughs> and, and so, and, and my daughter was too, right? And so, yeah. you know, she, even in active addiction, many, many times she was... I always knew what she was doing because she always kept me updated. And but it was texting forty-seven thousand times a day, and the phone calls were nonstop. But I always answered because I was afraid. Yeah. What if I didn't? Right. And my previous career, I worked for a semiconductor, and my uh, home office was in the UK. So I was in the UK about four times a year, and then all of my. Um, um, clients were in Europe and Asia. And so I was always traveling internationally and it always seemed like something happened when I was on a business trip. Right. And, and so my husband started becoming very, very resentful uh, of me because he felt that I would undermine him and it wasn't intentional. I was trying to soften, I think, the blow, yep. my, my version of it, to my daughter. And then I was becoming resentful of him because I felt that, right, he wasn't with me emotionally, wasn't supporting me. And, and so what happens when all you do is argue and you're so tired of it, you just stop. You stop communicating at all. Totally. Yeah. And everything shut down everything and we were on the verge of divorce even though we loved each other we didn't know how to get out of this pain yeah but we blamed it all on addiction and so we had to truly take a step back and this is a big part of what i do is like marriage boot camps for families that um have this with their kids because I know personally the hell of it it can play and we had to take a step back as and look at each other again as a man and a woman how hard is that when you've been together (laughs) with someone for you know 20 some years and and start dating again and being open and honest this was the hardest part of getting our resentments out and putting it on the table without the other person judging it. Like he could share something with me. This is how I felt Katie when this happened, I couldn't say, well, no, that's not how it happened. Or I did that because, <laughs> yeah. la, 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 right. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. But it was, uh, 
I had to accept whether it didn't matter that it, whether I agreed with it or not, it was honoring each other and, and, and respecting that that is how someone felt. And I will tell you, that was a big part of our transformation uh, in our marriage. And now we are closer than we've ever been. Uh, See, and if it wasn't for that adversity coming in, which you don't wish on any family, but as much as it comes in and does so much damage and havoc, it is a call to arms of getting healthy. And you may not have ever addressed those issues. I don't know. I have the relationship with my son. I don't know that he would understand what being introspective is. It's not a strong quality of the men in my family, typically, um, or what and, and having an immense process, even if it takes him some time to get to it or me. I don't know that those things would be healthy patterns for us because we wouldn't necessarily have been forced to care about them. Exactly. Exactly. So when you look at this, um, and this may sound a little odd, but even though this is the worst thing that I've ever been through, it's also made me such a better person. Yeah, that's what it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't always, there's a lot of hateful people that are having adversity. They're, you know, called to work through and not everyone does, but if you honestly take the reins of it and do the work, it can bring out the best and you and you, everyone survives it. It can, it can heal an entire family and generations to come, mm-hmm. not the addiction itself, but the process of recovering from it. Absolutely. The process of recovering yeah. from it. That is so true. And, and this is daily work for all of us every day. And it's almost like maintaining weight loss. And, you know, I know there's no one size fits all. It's patchwork for me. I love meetings. That's a big thing for me. And then you add things like I love DBT therapy, dialectical or any therapy and, you know, walks with friends or exercise or hiking and doing things alone. It's patchwork. It's not one size fits all or even the same thing every day because when you think you have to do a certain level of certain things every day, they become a burden. So it's kind of a mindful journey, if that makes sense. Oh, gosh, yes, for sure. And you heal as you go along the way. And maybe your writing, Annie, when you wrote your, your books was, was healing for you. Yeah. To put that on paper. <laughs> and that's kind of why I started my blog. It was just a fluke. My yeah. husband, you know, suggested that I start writing and I didn't know what I was doing. I've never written before or you know, made a website before. I'm literally watching YouTube videos of little kids, uh, literally, that know how to build websites and I'm hitting pause and doing what they did. <laughs> and so when it, when it just grew and, and almost right out of the gate, I, I mean, I just remember sobbing. And then also laughing like a hyena, like, you know, I'm losing it. Like, this is crazy. I'm just this mom in Macomb, Michigan. Why are these people reading my stuff? This is just insane. But it, there are many. Well, that's what brought me to my knees was there's so much pain in this world. So much. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, we're, we're all struggling with something, whether it's addiction or mental health or suicide or someone in someone's family is struggling and we don't talk about those struggles. We suffer silently and especially with addiction. This is such an isolating, isolating disease that we, we become sick right along with it. And I think when you start to share your story, 
it gives, and again, it doesn't even have to be about addiction, but something personal, raw, it gives others the courage to share as well. And with that, you find a community coming together. With that, you find common ground and healing. You start to find confidence as well. Also, I'm in, I'm in just, I work in a lot of public settings, but I'm real faithful to, I love my home group and my, my, the rooms and stuff. And I'm so used to, I hit that threshold where I've just become open. And I mean, there's wisdom. I'm not talking about maybe what's I'm necessarily fighting through that day or exposing, you know, too deeply personal issues of relationships around me, things like that. However, things I get the victory over and learn from, I'm, I love to write about and present. I feel like that's part of recovery and service. So it's interesting to me in these settings that I can be in a in the rooms with a group of people and you can kind of tell where they're at. Some people are completely open and they've been in it for a while. Some people are still guarded and, and in the beginning stages. And then out in public settings, I'll sense that kind of energy of somebody that's contracted and doesn't want to share it, if that makes sense, especially when it's professional settings. And I think, oh, that's what that is. They're just, you know, because I'm so used to people just being at this point, I've been doing it so long and I'm around it. So, you know, every day, so much during the week, when you bump up against somebody that is on guard and not open, and I don't mean an extreme amount of like, you don't need to tell every cashier your business, but someone that is just guarded and not real or transparent about who they are or what they're going through, you know, there's a difference when people kind of have a mask. It's yeah. so, it's, it just, it still kind of catches me off guard now because I'm so used to the process of recovery, making you comfortable to make you embarrass yourself, but it makes you comfortable with being honest. And that for me healed my life. And I wasn't, you know, I came from a lot of junk. I wasn't necessarily trying to present the opposite image that I was some princess from, you know, the Kennedy family. I just kind of kept it to myself and tried to work through it. But once I started working through it with safe, encouraging, supportive people, it kind of let let Pandora's box open and healed all of it. So it's just interesting to me still when I see people that are not comfortable being open and communicating at all because it heals you. Even if it's just with one person, it doesn't need to be in a, in a support meeting. It doesn't need to be in a podcast. You don't have to write a book. You don't have to write, be interviewed by Fox news. Even if it's just one safe person to say, this is what I'm going through. I mean, those slogans, a problem shared is half a problem is true. You let that stuff out and it hits the oxygen and you start getting immediate relief. That's how things get better. That's how things get better. And I think a big part of uh, there's fear involved in sharing. There's fear of being judged. There's fear um, in going back to when you were talking about relationships and, and things that you may need to remove in your life that could have been potentially toxic. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were times where I didn't want to share only because maybe I had in the past and I was getting the peanut gallery giving their advice, right? <laughs> and so I kind of stopped. And, and even with, with friends, um, they're asking because they really do care. And they, I think people in general want to give guidance. They feel that way. But it's, I, I now tell them and have for many years, whomever it is, I just need to be, you to be my friend and listen to me. That's it. Right. Just honor what I'm saying. And let me vent, let me cry, let me scream, but you don't need to solve it for me. Just and don't me. make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
This podcast is produced in partnership with Allies in Recovery. Join today and begin our self-guided e-learning program. From the comfort of your own home and at your own pace, you will learn how to shepherd your loved one toward treatment and long-term recovery. Our in-house experts, led by Dominique Simon Levine, also provide personalized guidance to members. Learn more at alliesinrecovery.net and join today. So um, I was, I just related to how you talked about the kind of losing it with the garbage. I actually had written about that in my first book that I came to. Um, there were times that I would miss my exit on the freeway and not even realize I didn't remember where I was driving. And I was, <laughs> you're still aware, but you're in your head. And I had, you know, I, I was working in, in running and helping run an insurance office. I was around clients all day and I had kids in my life that I had to be present for and appropriate around. I wasn't dangerous, but I was so wrapped up in my brain. And I remember one day a woman had tailgated me and laid on her horn at a stop sign. And I had maybe lingered for three seconds, not long enough to warrant her laying on it. And I was so, it was like my snapping point. I like chased her through this parking lot and I like gave her the finger and made pig noses at her. And she's like, just stopped and stare. And this was, you know, I can still be a little hood sometimes, but that wasn't typically in my character. I was like, I'm a professional full grown woman that raised a son and worked hard enough to, to come out of what I did to put him in, you know, private school. I'm at least dignified enough that this behavior is terrible. I know better, but it just took over for a moment. It was a snapping, but you just, it makes you so crazy. I mean, because you lose sleep, you're in fear all the time. I don't care if you're doing the normal things like going to the store and working and staying on top of all that still, it is so in your heart and on your mind that it makes you crazy, especially a parent. I think especially a mom, I'm not discounting dads, but just from my perspective, it makes you, I had a hair trigger that I could not take anything. So I, yeah. I completely understood that. That's why we need recovery. Yes. So we don't get to those points of losing it. Right. And right. I mean, I remember being in the grocery store and having like grocery cart rage, like get out of my way. Why do you got to stand in front of the canned goods for 27 minutes with your 86 coupons? Move it, lady. I got stuff to do. Right. Like, who cares? Why am I so upset about this? Or the grocery store. I remember going through the grocery store and hearing Christmas music and having, putting my head down on a shelf and bawling my eyes out and being like, if anybody sees me right now, or just running into somebody at the grocery store who said, how's your son doing? Mine's pre-med. You know what I'm thinking? Oh my goodness. You know, and that's not, no fault of theirs, but it, I was so, you're so highly triggered to either those snapping moments, which again is why we need to recover, but you're in so much pain and sorrow. Mm -hmm. Those moments are just, I mean, it is just with you. Don't lose the sense of it. It is with you constantly. Mm -hmm. That's so true because you do have such pain and you don't know how to make it go away. No, you don't. And then add to it, if anybody in your life or around you or even on the news throws shame and blame to it when you've already got this terror you're in fear and sorrow and nostalgia all these things that you're carrying and then the shame of it too i mean it's just madness that's why i love that more people are speaking out more families are coming forward that work is really coming inside out where people are opening up the fourth wall and it's becoming a more comfortable conversation because at least remove the shaming of it so you can work through the fear and pain you got it. You nailed it right on the head for sure. <laughs> so, um, I, 
as far as my, as relapses go, I wanted to hit on that too for a second. I'd actually spent some time with them. We took a big trip out west. My son tends to be in LA or Arizona, so he works kind of back and forth. So we went and met him in Arizona, drove to LA, and then did a California trip. And I was surprised how crazy I still was when I got there because there's something about having gone through it, but also he lives far away now. So our time is limited. As soon as he's in our presence, my eyes are on the clock. How much time do we have left? But I would kind of, um, I would kind of snap on him about his driving and his time of getting things done. And, and I was just like, what am I doing? Like, I'm still crazy. And then he would be frustrated. And at one point, and this is just how he is, he was driving on the 405 in California with his knee. And he's real used to those roads or whatever, but I don't like you driving with your knee in a school zone. So I'm hearing a panic attack. No, right. We're going like 80 or 90. And so I'm kind of freaking out and he's telling me not to freak out. And then I'm not wanting to freak out because I don't want to scare him any further. And so here's our thing. This is the, this is what we do. This is the family disease up here. Here's our dynamic. So anyway, we made it through. I was breathing and praying and you know, just freaking out right. and triggered. And as soon as we came to a stop, both of us at the same time said, never again. He didn't want me in his car again. <laughs> I didn't want to be in his car again. So it's just a matter of, I love you to death, but I still realize I can be triggered. So I'm just going to drive myself or Uber and follow you and meet you there because I still have terror over you doing things a certain way or not surviving them if you don't and me thinking I got to fix it. And that's right there It in a nutshell. Absolutely. It's that PTSD that kicks in, right? Truly. We've experienced so much trauma that it is just minor things like that that put you right into an anxious zone that you end up snapping and you don't mean to. And, and But it's wonderful that you guys can, like you said, there's nothing that's been unsaid and you can communicate with that openly now that probably didn't happen before. Right. Yeah. Do you mm -hmm. have that with your daughter as well? To where oh, you're, yeah. Because all the, you know, even the mean stuff's been said. And, but so mm -hmm. is, you know, I love you and this is what you mean to me. Mm -hmm. A big thing that uh, my daughter and I do, and we've done it ever since she was a little kid. Uh, it started when she had her very first sleepover when she was like five or six years old and went to a friend's house and she got scared in the middle of the night and wanted to come home. Uh, and she called me. And I remember saying, you know, just look outside and look at the moon and put your hand on your heart and I'll put my hand on mine and I'm always with you. And that calmed her right down and she went right to sleep and stayed the night at her friend's house. And this kind of became our thing over yeah. the years. And every time either she, you know, she went to treatment or is out of state and, and that type of thing, we would just say that. And she just the other night, uh, she sent me a text. She works midnights right now. And so she sent me a text in the middle of the night. And it just said, hand on my heart. That's all it said. Yeah, that's good. And uh, so it's, we have just, we really are completely honest, though, uh, sometimes to a fault of how things affect us. But it also, we have, I, I feel like sometimes I know exactly what she's thinking. It, as soon as I can hear her voice or see her and when we FaceTime, I know exactly what's going to happen because of this open communication now. And it helps you know where each other stands. Yeah, it, does, it helps you to kind of have, 
healthier standards and boundaries. I had um, my son's dad and I had been um, divorced some years before. I think he was nine. So we had to kind of clean all of that up. You have to clean up everything a family goes through. We cleaned that up and developed the best possible method of unity, um, even though he can be an idiot and he knows and, you know, me as well. But I was talking to him about all this stuff that we had gone through. He had come through stuff in his family and I did also. And then going through that with my son and I have a, you know, a difficult relationship with my mother. And I was kind of, I, I believe in a philosophy of stoicism. I can tend to be obsessed with it. So I try to filter everything through that, not Pollyanna, but just how can I put a positive spin and put and, and handle this with grit, this situation. So I, but in a lapse of judgment, I was kind of complaining and I said to him, gosh, if it wouldn't have been like this for you or for me, or if it, we wouldn't have gone through this or that, I probably could have done so much more. I could have become a writer earlier. I could have achieved this and that by this age and be here now at this point, which I'm so thankful for the direction my writing has gone, but I wanted to do it years earlier. I just was terrible at it. But now I've kind of built my momentum. So I was going on and on about, I could have been this or that, you know, I could have been a contender, all that. And he said, or you could have been an unconscious, untitled, un, uh, entitled, ungrateful person, a bored mm -hmm. housewife mm -hmm. that never mm -hmm. did anything with your life ever or ever cleaned up dysfunction and left a legacy. So mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I just, I really hate when you say something good. That's but it was beautiful. true. If you put a spin on that, that what you've come through, and I never uh, apply this when it pertains to grief or loss in this epidemic, but when, if a family can manage their way out of this, you can become better than what you were originally directed to be. It changes, it changes the entire trajectory of the family. But if everyone does their work, your family can end up better in every way. Oh, that's the biggest part of it, right? This is Coming Up for Air. We're going to take a short break to share with you some words from an Allies in Recovery member. My reaction to my son's use didn't change until I found air. Watching the modules and reading through the resources on this site is helping me realize what I can and cannot control. It's also helping me with my, my communication skills, so my interactions with him aren't so volatile. It's difficult, but I'm staying with craft methods and hope that we'll develop a more open and honest relationship. I can't help but wonder if my constant arguing and confrontation pushed him to continue to use in the past. But regardless, I'm trying to start a new path for a relationship using craft. Thanks to our partner, alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to coming up for air. So I think in order for us to either even begin our own work is realizing that we could potentially be a part of the problem. Yes. <laughs> right? So in the beginning, when people would say, you need to go to a support group or you should go to a therapist, blah, blah, blah. I was like, why? Hon? She's got the problem, not me. Like, she straightens up. I'm fine. Right. She just listen to what I said. Everything would be just fine. Like, I'm this perfect, right? Please. <laughs> so that was a big thing of the realization of I do have work to do on myself. And that work that I've done has helped me in all aspects of my life. And I continue to do work on myself. And it's not even really addiction related, right? That this is all just self-improvement as a, as a human. And it, even on a spiritual level of, 
you need to do that. All of us should do that because it comes with being kind with, with grace, forgiving with grace, and just becoming a better person. And I believe in that with all of my heart. Well, if you think about it, if you, I would love to read about, um, I think there's a book by Daniel Coleman about emotional intelligence, and it talks about how the measure of that is self-awareness and the, doing the mm-hmm. introspective work. Mm-hmm. And I can just think about so many situations, even friendships, family relationships, that if a little bit of introspection and ownership was introduced, oh, like, oh, yes, you know, the ability to say, I'll look at my part in this, or I get it wrong sometimes, you know. Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of people that won't, don't ever look at that. Don't, don't ever address that. If that when that's introduced, that's transformative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you stop blaming. Yeah, and it, it can end a, a war in a family. If at least one person says, you know what, you might be right. I've got this or that I need to work on mm-hmm. that in a moment like that can transform a family. Taking that ownership. Oh, gosh, yes, for sure. I also loved it when you talked about how your husband had said your daughter wasn't going to be able to live without you. Mm-hmm. That's, that is, you know, I have moms or dads all the time that say I'm, I'm taking care of their insurance because if their insurance lapses and then they get pulled over and you know, they, the parents get hung up on that insurance for some reason that happens all the time. Or um, another mom had said, I lay her clothes out before work. So she doesn't even have to be stressed in the morning and she can just go. Nothing's stopping her. Right. Well, you are, but you don't realize that, you well, know, that was my whole moment of, oh my gosh, when I thought I was doing everything right, right. Because it was actually doing so much wrong because I, what kind of a mother am I being? What am I teaching her? And teaching her, I'll fix everything and I'll do the work for her. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we all do that at some point. I went from caregiver to caretaker. Yeah. And that was, that was transformational for me because I knew uh, I needed to take a step back and um, let her figure things out, just like we did growing up, right? Yeah. She's got to figure some of this stuff out on her own. And I learned how to respond in healthier ways to her. You know, she called me with a challenge, which seemed to happen every day, right? There was all kinds of drama, but instead of me wanting to fix that moment, I would respond with, I'm sorry, this is happening today. What do you, what do you think you should do? Yeah. That was huge because it would put it back on her to figure out. Right. Instead of triaging, I kind of veered back and forth with that because my mom was a part of the, um, she was um, a toxic part of my son's situation. So she would kind of keep secrets from me for him because she thought if he and I were fighting, it would get worse. So she was just a terrible thorn in my side during that. So I would try to enforce misery. So I always said I was not my son's enabler. I was the enforcer. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, to some degree that doesn't work either because I'm still thinking I'm going to control the outcome by going crazy and forcing the situation to come to a head, which is what we all do. We're trying to get them to get it and get out of it. But we're not the one that can. I mean, we can speak to it and modify our behavior and shepherd people toward, you know, what might be an aha moment, but we're not going to make them get it. So that was, I, I don't think it works in either direction. So I remember my son sometimes telling me, 
when he would have a situation explode or a problem, and I would think, well, good. You need to get your bell rung. You need to wake up. So I've had so many parents say to me, my son's going to end up in jail and I don't want that to happen. And I can't get him into this treatment center until this date. And I think that's where it's going to be. And because I was so brainwashed by myself and my fear, I believed my son's way out was misery. So I would try to get him arrested and cause problems and show up and make things worse and threaten people. And it made him go into more dangerous, dangerous behavior. And it just... It just, none of it works. When we're at that point where we're running alongside it crazy as they are, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's when it's like, okay, you got to step back and at least take a day to regain sanity. Mm -hmm. But that's what it makes you do. It makes you go crazy trying to figure it out. It does. And and whether you're, um, you know, one like me that was totally enabling, right? Uh, Or like you said, you were kind of the opposite. Both of it is coming from a place of fear and a place of control. Absolutely. And trying to make myself feel safe because if I would have stepped back and got some, some positive support for myself and let let what needed to happen, happen, it, you know, it has to take care of itself and run its course. And that doesn't mean just cut them off and, you know, people take these beliefs to extremes. But if I wouldn't have, you know, I had a, a nurse friend say to me, just like you can't run beside every car he's in, making sure he doesn't veer off the road and get in an accident, you can't run beside his life and make sure it plays out this way. I mean, because how crazy is that if I were to try? But we try. We do. We <laughs> no matter where they're at, their location. We try yeah, and it. you, we become sicker. I love, um, I listen to a speaker sometimes on, there's another podcast called The Recovery Show and they have Mary Pearl sometimes and she's hilarious. She's an, um, she is a fa- affected family member as well. She talked about how her husband was, you know, this raging alcoholic and she was the one not allowed in any of the bars because she, she's like, I never had a drink in any of them, but I'd been in them, you know, making a scene and trying to drag him out and causing fights. And here he is, this problem alcoholic, you know, she's, he's ruining our family, but she was banned from every bar and he, he was welcome in all of them. And that's really a great picture of what we do. It's so true. That is so funny. Oh my gosh. That is funny. I also wanted to touch on, um, I know a lot of moms that you said that you found out the issue was going on because of the Xanax in her system. You know, I know of parents that found out because an overdose occurred, you know, the child lived through it and they had no idea it was a drug problem. They thought, you know, it was this, that, or the other. And that's how they were, the situation exploded on them. I would say that I did know because I came from addiction and, you know, my mom's a active use. She's also a little church lady, but it's been a, a lifelong problem. I was aware of it and it still didn't matter. I mean, there were things I had to do and knowledge I had to obtain for sure. But a lot of people blame themselves because they think, how could I not have known? If I would have known more, I could have done more. I did know more and did try to do more. And it still ended up the way it ended up. I mean, Mm -hmm. really, there's no way to prepare or ready yourself at all. It just, if it happens, it happens. And the family has to drop the blame, drop the regret and take the reins of recovery. Well, that's, and that's so true. And it's just like, you know, there isn't a, a true handbook that comes with this because, you know, like when you're pregnant and you get the book, what to expect when you're expecting, it's, you can pretty much predict what happens at three months, at six months, right? And then with this, it, it can go a hundred thousand gazillion directions, yeah. but there is 
best practices and there is best guidance, but it's, it's us being coming to a point of being open to actually practicing them right. is where it will take effect. It is such a unique problem and it doesn't have any of the same solutions that any other problem has. You don't, you can't use simple math. You can't use, you know, just cause and effect and consequences and disciplines. You can't use all of that. You have to learn about it and understand the nuance and psychology of it. And it's different for every family. So it, it is just so unique. I had a friend that described it. She um, was a firefighter and she said, it's like the movie Predator, that you'll think you understand it and have it nailed down how to handle it in one way and it shows up in another form some other way. And it just keeps coming back in until you start building momentum and, st- and stability. So true. It's so true. Yes. I always tell people that the first, because um, people would give advice and things like that, like you said, and then you would you know, try to do it. And then a lot of times I'd fail and then hate them. So um, <laughs> one of the best bits of advice, and I think it's a recovery program promise, is that if, a, you know, when a family situation is exploding and in havoc, if one person in the situation does work to heal and get well, the family situation is bound to improve. And that is a promise. And it's if you think about if you live on a street that's a mess, but you begin working to clean up your side of the street and rebuilding the ruins on your side that spreads. But if you're standing in the midst of the ruins, just calling out what people need to do on the other side, it's not going to go anywhere. You're just going to end up in conflict. But when you begin to do that self-work, it begins to calm the situation and spill over to everybody. At least that's, I mean, that's what's worked in our situation is working on yourself. And then that kind of changes all the relationships. It really does. It's not adding fuel to the fire. It's staying in your own hula hoop and, 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 and focusing on cleaning up your own yard. Yeah, and that's that was a helicopter rip for me that I was like, oh, if I just work because I had a little bit of a codependent motive at first. It's like, oh, so if I work on me, it's going to fix the situation. So I would like up the ante of doing all this work and then call him and let him know and tell him what I highlighted and highlight stuff for him that he should do on himself. (laughs) So I took I took the toxic stuff into even that. And then it was like, okay, I just got to calm down and do the work. Oh my gosh, it's so true. It's so true. But you keep learning and you keep growing. Yeah. And with that, you get so much stronger. You really do. You do. And, that- and it's going to come back up. It does come back up. I asked a therapist friend once when I did catch myself like, oh my gosh, I'm even doing some of this healthy stuff in unhealthy ways. I got to check my motives. And I said, why do I keep returning to codependent patterns? And she said, because codependency is insatiable. It is as much of a disease as somebody affected by and craving and caught up in addiction. It is insatiable. Have you found that to be true for you? Oh, gosh, yes. Catch myself quite a bit. Of <laughs> quite a bit. And it's difficult. It's difficult. Have you ever heard of the craft method or applied anything like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love it. I was actually trained in it as well. It's- oh, I love that too. I know I've um, worked for allies in recovery and I was trained in that. And I love some of those concepts, especially again, that you come back to working on yourself and incorporating motivational interviewing and Mm -hmm. reflective listening and modifying your own responses and then calming your crazy before you jump into theirs and, or anyone else's it can apply to any realm of life, even professionally. And CRAFT, by the way, stands for Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And it's about getting the village around the person affected 
to become well and do the work and to reinforce positive behavior and to not jump in and engage with the hostile negative behavior, if that makes sense. And that applies in any conversational realm of life, I think. Absolutely. Any relationship, any, uh, you know, whether it's at work or a personal relationship, it, it can truly apply to anything. Now, a short pause for a word from our partner, Allies in Recovery. Is your loved one resistant to getting treatment? Are you hitting a wall when you try to communicate with them or offer them help? Is your own mental or physical health deteriorating? The CRAFT method, which we teach on our e-learning platform, was designed to address these very challenges. A membership with Allies in Recovery gives you unlimited access to a library of learning videos, ebooks, and worksheets, as well as in-house expert guidance tailored to your situation. Visit alliesinrecovery.net today. I want to say also, I personally know how scary it is when you start talking about the tough stuff in your life, the raw stuff, sometimes even the embarrassing stuff. So how did you personally and your daughter as well agree to overcome the fear of rejection, criticism, even family or local backlash, conflict it might cause, um, fear of being outcasted, which is always an internal fear, as you begin to open up about that these intense and sensitive areas. How did you, if you could tell me your experience with that, if anything (laughs) happened or occurred and how you dealt with it. So in the beginning, uh, we all sat down together as a family, the four of us. And before I started the blog and because really prior to that, not many people knew. And we sat down together as a family to talk about this and what are we comfortable sharing? And ironically, I, I didn't really care if anyone judged me. It's like, whatever. Right. I'm used but, to it. <laughs> right. And, and my, my daughter, Brittany, she was like, hey, this needs to be said. Yeah. I was more concerned about my youngest daughter because she's, well, right now she's in 11th grade. And when we came out, it was probably... Uh, three, four years ago, publicly, publicly, I was concerned that her friends at school or parents of her friends would judge our family and maybe she would be affected in that way. And what she said to me was, mom, if they do, then they're not my real friends. Oh, good. And, and so that That's gave a us hard a, place to come to for a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I, that's when we said, you know what, we're all in unity and every, any blog or anything that I, that I post, I send to everybody. Right. I want you guys to read this before I send it out. Is everyone on board with it? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So it's, I think knowing that uh, people are going to judge whether whether you kick your child out, whether they stay home. They're going to judge whether your child smokes pot or they do heroin. They're going to judge if you um, wear blue instead of red, right? Yeah. People are, especially on social media, I think it's, uh, it gives people somehow the confidence to just turn into a very rude and negative person. Yeah, because in, in person, I'll punch you in the face. Right. Right. 
Nobody's going to say that kind of stuff to you in an elevator. You know. <laughs> and in the beginning, uh, there, there was a little criticism. And I just really had to find the strength inside to rise above it and realize yeah. that um, what your words say in a negative way is really a reflection upon somebody else, on themselves. And yeah, I love that Brene also says I've got a few people's names written down who their opinion matters more than anybody's. So mm-hmm. if you have mm-hmm. a good, solid, su- supportive core group of people close to you, you're less vulnerable, I think. Yes, yes. And people will judge also about things that are uncomfortable for them. Right. And that give us an opportunity to educate. Or give us an opportunity to, you know, put the hula hoop around us even more of strength and rise above that. Because there's just negative people in this world, face it. And you just, their opinion doesn't matter. Right. When you believe in love in yourself. I had to sit, I went to my family members that um, would be affected and made sure that they knew I want to do this honoring because we've come through a lot of stuff, but we've overcome a lot of stuff and come back to heal. And, you know, for the fact that a few of us have confidence after some of the trauma we've been through, that says a lot. I know there's more people out there. So I'm Mm -hmm. opening this fourth wall as well, but I'm going to do it in a way that's honoring and not shaming. So, you know, I think once everybody's on board together, I remember calling my son when my first book came out and I said, I'm not getting out of bed. What have I done? Like every, it's one thing when it's people writing to me from Georgia or Utah or California, but I still have to go to the grocery store. I'm running into people at the gas station who maybe didn't know that I had this childhood or that, you know, I struggled in these, with these sibling issues or my mother. And he said, just keep the cadence and consistency going of what you're doing. And eventually those things will just kind of fade away. So just keep doing what you're doing. And, and that was the truth. If you feel like you're meant to do it, you just keep doing what you're doing and focus on what's positive and, and kind of surround yourself with light and love and support. That stuff really falls away, I think, but it's terrifying at first. It's terrifying at first. And, and I was, you know, ironically, what would hurt me the most were actually people in the treatment world. Huh. That, and again, it was just a, a, a couple, but that hurt me the most because they felt that I had ulterior motives. Oh, really? My blog. <laughs> right. And I didn't even understood what, what that meant in the beginning. And then I learned to, but I was, I was so shocked and hurt by that. That actually ironically hurt me the most because I thought, I don't understand. They don't even know me yet. I'm trying to do a good thing and I'm being judged for it. Right. By the community that I thought I would be welcomed into. So, but again, it's just like you said, you just keep doing the right thing. And when you come from an authentic place, then the blessings just come. I agree. And it reminds me of another piece of advice I love from someone I got through working my process of emotionally recovering when it was like everything hit at once. You know, like I said, when my son went out West, my dog died. I had an abrupt, shocking job change. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it was one, my mother lost her mind even more. And it was family. It was one thing after another, after another, after another. Um, one of my best closest friends was going through a divorce and that can make you become, you know, what seems like a different person out of pain. It was all of this happening at the same time. There was a lot of conflict surrounding my life. And somebody said to me, don't try to figure your way out of all of it. Just do the next right thing for the next 15 minutes over and over again. And so that uh, I kind of lived 15 minutes at a time or an hour at a time or a breath at a time sometimes. And what's the next right thing? I don't know. So maybe I'll just go do laundry or maybe I'll call some hemorrhaging in my heart right now, or maybe I'll take a nap or maybe I'll send a card and encourage somebody else. I don't know. It's not always clear and present right in front of you what the next right thing is. But when you start turning that ship around, things get better. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Oh, you're speaking to my heart, girl. (laughs) Well, I definitely feel like we are cut from the same cloth. So with that said, you just kind of hit everything. I love that you said you came from a normal, well, not so normal, a typical family, because I think so many of us all across this nation can relate to that. And... I want to add that we like to end on hope. A lot of our listeners are these typical families who have some type of struggle, adversity, or specifically addiction in them. Is there any thoughts that you might share for anyone presently struggling with an addicted loved one? To stay in the moment. Stay in the moment. Not think about tomorrow or the future. Two weeks from now, you stay in the moment and you love your child and realizing that they are sick and their behaviors are really symptoms of their disease. And it's really hard to take a step back and see it that way, but to accept them emotionally and mentally where they're at can do wonders, not only for them, for them, but for your relationship and yourself and every other aspect. And that there is hope. There's also a big point of when you start to focus on yourself and your own healing and you become stronger, ironically, your loved one might just become that much stronger too. I think that's so true. And that's so healing to say, love them where they're at. I mean, the reality is people do die from addiction or or situations related. And I know a lot of parents that have lost kids, but because they had worked on themselves and learn to love them in a different, healthier way. There had been peace between them and positivity, and they didn't, you know, they're not facing grief, but also adding regret and all the pain and torment that comes with, oh, I'd cut this person off. I'd said hateful things. That was our last conversation. And, and you can heal from that as well. But why right. not heal in the present and love them in a different way? Work on yourself until and if they do recover. Yes, absolutely. So if you'll tell our families how to find your work, what you might have coming next, how to get connected with you so that we can support you, that would be awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I am a family coach. I'm really a really, it's a life coach that specializes in families that are affected by addiction. And you can check out my website at a mother's addiction journey.com. And I'm actually in the process of finishing my book, which Yay. I'm super excited about. And I'm really, really hoping it will be complete and done within the next, oh, 
I don't want to be out. Well, let's just say hopefully within two months, it'll be done, 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 like ready to go. Well, wonderful. We'd love to have you back on then and promote it and support it and all that you're doing. And I'll send all of this out with the show notes. And I am just so happy to find somebody who is like-minded. I feel like we share the same journey as well as the same heart. And I can't say enough. Thank you. You are amazing. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesandrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, our production team, and Mikael Mouboussin for the original music composition.